Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. A little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous if you have a case of any size. So if it's a small case, whatever, you make a mistake, fine, right? It doesn't make sense in many cases for somebody with a small case to hire a lawyer. But if you have any injury of any substance, I, I think you want to be in the hands of, of a professional in the same way that you would hire a realtor to sign your, sell, to sell your house or, or a doctor to give you medical care, right? You wouldn't just go to WebMD and, um, and prescribe yourself medicine. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Brian Glass is here with me today, ladies and gentlemen, on the Dreamcatchers podcast. Brian, how are you, sir? I'm wonderful. How are you? Outstanding, man. We're here at GoBundance. I can't believe I get to meet this amazing man. I stumbled across him on LinkedIn, saw some crazy posts, and I was like, hey, I got to sit down with him. And so he was kind enough to spend some time with me today. And ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat. So, Brian, you know, we do things a little unconventional on this podcast. If the listeners, the listeners are going to want to get in contact with you if something unfortunate happens in their life, what's the best way for them to do that? So the best way to find me and my business online is to go to our website, www.benglasslaw.com. And it's confusing, Jerome, because my dad is Ben and I joined his business about three years ago and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I get confused for Ben all the time and I don't think he gets confused for me. But the best way to find me is at benglasslaw.com. Beautiful. So, all right, you're an attorney, right? You do big cases. You get huge settlements for people who've been impacted and not sure the specific things that you focus on, but I'm certain that you can share that with the listeners. So, so break it down for us, man. Sure. So I'm a personal injury lawyer. I work in Fairfax, Virginia. I handle cases throughout the state of Virginia and into Maryland, but our bread and butter is in Northern Virginia. So the couple of counties that surround Northern Virginia. And we are hyper-specialized in the area of auto accidents. And my specialty within that area is people who have traumatic brain injuries or of who, who have had a surgery as a result of their crash. The firm, we handle cases of all size. So if somebody goes to an emergency room, goes to a chiropractor, physical therapy afterwards, I have team members um, who can help with those kinds of cases. My specialty these days is traumatic brain injuries and surgical cases. Surgical cases and traumatic brain injuries. Now, you know, personal injury attorneys, there's the stigma, ambulance chaser, and all this other nonsense that's out there. And then there are people who actually protect other folks, right? 
I haven't told you this, and I want to wait till we started recording. I was in a head-on accident with a dump truck that crossed the center line into my lane. So I'm very familiar with what you guys do and how that can change somebody's life if they have proper representation. And so let's say somebody or somebody they know ends up in a very unfortunate circumstance. What should they do? Say they're in a car accident. What, what happens next? Well, the first thing you should do is make sure you're getting appropriate medical care. So, you know, if somebody calls my office and they've been in a crash and they haven't seen a doctor yet, that's an indication to me that it's probably not the kind of case that we want. Because I want you to go get the medical things taken care of first, right? Let's get you back to some kind of stabilization medically and physically so that you're in the right frame of mind to make the proper decision about which lawyer is right for you. What we see sometimes is people will run to the first lawyer that they see, right? You see a billboard, the, the guy that's paying the most for the pay-per-click ads. They won't do any research at all, and they'll hire that guy. And, and that guy sometimes is not a specialist. He may, may play one on TV, right? Um, but typically, and a lot of times, he, he's not a specialist, or he might not be a trial lawyer. He might be somebody who presses you towards a settlement, um, doesn't have the experience and the, the chops to go into a courtroom and get what you might deserve in a case. And the insurance companies know that, right? They keep track of who tries cases, who settles cases, who never files any lawsuit. So the first thing to do is, is get medical care and then make sure that you start to do your research about what kind of a lawyer should I look like or look for and do I mesh well with the, the lawyer that I'm talking to because that's a relationship that might be 18, 24, 36 months long before your case is over. Now, most people don't do this proactively, right? It's always a react. If something bad happened, I got to get an attorney. How do they, in that space of being in pain, actually efficiently evaluate people who can actually help them with the challenge that they have? So my best clients will almost always be referred by somebody. So our best clients come from other lawyers who know that we're good at what we do. Uh, from their doctors sometimes, or from a friend or a family member who's had a similar situation. How do you evaluate whether somebody's the right fit for your case? And this goes beyond personal injury, right? It goes to criminal, it goes to wills, it goes to divorces. Um, you need somebody in, in 2022 now who is a hyper-specialist in your area, right? You don't want to hire a generalist, um, especially where I practice in Northern Virginia. There's too many good lawyers who specialize in the area of law that you have a problem in for you to go and hire somebody who does a little bit of everything. Okay. So specialists? So are you saying lawyers or attorneys are similar to like doctors? They are. Um, you don't receive in the legal field specialized training necessarily in the way that you do in the medical field. So as a doctor, you might go and do a residency and then an internship to, and then be board certified in a specialty. It, in, as a lawyer, like you graduate law school, you take the bar, and then you're a lawyer. There is no typically special course to go and get uh, training in wills or criminal law or, or divorces. Um, but most people will go to a firm that will train them on that sort of practice area. And we'll grow up in that practice area. The, the indication is, if you're looking and evaluating, is this guy a good lawyer for me? And his website says he does absolutely everything and bankruptcies and custody cases. Like, he's probably not the right fit for your case. 
And that's because of the complexities and the nuances associated with it. And so do you have any examples of a person who maybe picked a specialist and it didn't work out or picked a generalist and it didn't work out to give people some context on the yeah. difference? Yeah, well, I have, I have, I'll tell you, and I, I've settled in the last year, and I hate doing these kinds of cases, but three legal malpractice cases uh, on behalf of clients who hired me after having hired a generalist to handle their case, and the generalist screwed it up. So somebody that has a I'll do everything kind of practice might not know that certain entities are immune. So if you were hit by a, a government employee, that claim has to be handled a specific kind of way for you to get a recovery from the government. And they hadn't checked the boxes and done the steps, and they screwed up this person's claim. So the person comes to me, uh, and now we have a claim against the lawyer for malpractice and not against the person that caused the auto accident. So that's that's one. Um, and then more recently, I, you know, I handled a case for a lady... Uh, who lived in a different state but was in a crash in Virginia. She hired a lawyer in her state, and every state has slightly different rules, like just different enough where you can cause major error if you don't know what you're doing. So she'd hired a a lawyer in a neighboring state to handle the case, um, and he missed an important deadline in the case. And the important deadline that he missed meant that she could never, ever recover from the auto accident, auto injury um, insurance company. And so we had to recover from him. And I, I don't like doing those cases. I don't like having to tell another lawyer that they screwed something up or having to tell a client that I can't get you any money from the insurance company because it's now the lawyer's fault. Um, but we've handled three of those cases in the last year. And so it, it has become a key part of our marketing that we feel that our duty to people who are out there looking um, is to put ourselves in front of them. Right. So you, you mentioned ambulance chasers. Nobody likes seeing uh, the TV ads right, or the billboard ads in, in certain areas of the country um, because we think that the lawyers are just out to do a money grab. Well, well, no, if you're a specialist in that area, you have a duty to advertise yourself in such a way that you are capturing those people as clients so that they aren't ending up in the hands of somebody who might screw up their case. Wow. So you're suing attorneys who aren't doing what they should be doing for their clients. And interesting note, I had an attorney ask me to sign a form to say that I would not sue them for malpractice. And they positioned it as, hey, it's just an insurance thing or a malpractice insurance thing. It helps them keep their premiums down. Is that common practice or no? That sounds highly unethical. Does it? It does. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should talk after this. But, but yeah, you. I mean, it's. Did you hire that lawyer after he asked you to sign the thing that said, "If I screw something up, you can't collect any money from me"? This was after the verdict. So we went to trial. Mm. We went to trial, and before the verdict was rendered, there was a delay. He said, "Hey, I don't know how it's going to go, but." In order to help me with my insurance malpractice insurance, I need you to say that regardless of how it happens. Can you imagine if you, if you went to a doctor, right? Let's say you had a, a kidney issue and you went to a doctor and surgeon and he said, Jerome, here's what you need. We've got to do this operation. But before we do the operation, I need you to sign something that says, I don't know how it's going to go. But if it goes south, 
you're not going to sue me. And and the reason that I need you to do that is for my medical malpractice coverage. Yeah, it's craziness, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. But it happens all the time. If you think about anytime you do some of those adventure things out of the country or even in the country, you go horseback riding, you do a car adventure track thing, those forms are there basically saying, hey. We're, you're talking about the waiver yeah. forms. So most of those aren't valid, right? If you sign them, you, uh, you in most states, you cannot waive somebody's negligence. So, right, giving signing that form doesn't give them permission to then hit you on the head as you're driving by on your go-kart. Um, doesn't give them permission to not do proper maintenance on the go-kart. Um, so, yes, you're right. Many businesses have those things. They don't, they don't do a whole lot, though. Yeah. I'm getting off track. I'm getting sidetracked because this thing is is so intriguing for me because most people don't understand that knowing the law or having somebody on your team that knows the law is kind of the difference between a lot of money and no money, right? I, I imagine you've had clients that have come to you who didn't know what they were doing, like had no idea. And you have the opportunity to save them from making some pretty big mistakes. Well, we hear it all the time, right? We, we uh, the internet is a bad thing for most people um, because a little bit of knowledge can be very, very dangerous, right? So whether it's I put my numbers into a settlement calculator and here's what it said my case is worth, or or whether they've believed something that they've heard about a particular insurance company. Um, a little bit of knowledge can be very dangerous if you have a case of any size. So if it's a small case, whatever, you make a mistake, fine, right? It doesn't make sense in many cases for somebody with a small case to hire a lawyer. But if you have any injury of any substance, I, I think you want to be in the hands of, of a professional in the same way that you would hire a realtor to sign your, sell, to sell your house or, or a doctor to give you medical care, right? You wouldn't just go to WebMD and, um, and prescribe yourself medicine. Some people do, though, because, I mean, we opened it up with that. You said everything that I know, do, put together is on the Internet. And what I think most people don't get is, but it's not there in a cohesive system process where in those gaps that you don't know that you have are the ones that can screw the pooch, right? Well, it's there. It's there in a way that's a thousand words, written typically not by a lawyer but by a search engine optimizer um, that tells a partial story. And so, yes, most of what's on the internet is true, but it's not the whole truth. So, how did you get into this? I know you said you joined Dad's firm, but that's not all you've done. So, well, um, so growing up, like I, I think back now, and I always wanted to be a trial lawyer. I don't. You know, at some point, I probably wanted to play football, but you, you've seen me. I'm five foot nine and a little under 200 pounds. I would not have made a very good football player, right? Um, so that was brief. I played one one season of football, like in elementary school, and I tried to quit halfway through. And my parents wouldn't let me. Um, but I never wanted to be anything else other than a trial lawyer, and I don't know why. Uh, so I went to undergrad. I majored in philosophy because I said I'm going to go to law school. So it doesn't matter what I major in. Why don't I major in something that I enjoy? Went to law school at William and Mary. Uh, I graduated and I started working for an auto accident firm, where I worked for about ten years. Became a partner. Um, 
And then after 10 years, I left and went to work with my dad. So three, three and a half years ago now, I joined him. Uh, he does a slightly different area of law now. So I run our auto accident practice. He runs our long-term disability appeals practice. And we have a team of about 12 people. And it's, it's been amazing. We've grown in the last three years about 2x. Uh, Revenue-wise, we have a goal to grow another 2x in the next three years. We've been running a system called Traction uh, Entrepreneur Operating System, which you're nodding, so I'm sure you're familiar with, that's been transformational for our business. We have real systems in place now. Uh, my wife exited from her uh, HR job. She's come over and she's managing our HR in our office. And, and at 12, 15 people, we're kind of on the cusp of when we needed a full-time HR person. So that's been a great uh, move for her and for our family. And so that's kind of how I got where I am. Wow. So most people out there may be saying, well, don't all attorneys go to trial? Like, what's a trial attorney? So there's all kinds of lawyers. There's transactional lawyers, you know, who, who help deals get together. So we're at a GoBundance conference. We're talking real estate deals. Um, there are lawyers who just facilitate those things. Um, there are lawyers who help you prepare your will. That guy probably is never going to trial. Um, there are criminal defense lawyers who are in trial every day. Um, all injury lawyers don't go to trial. There are lawyers who specialize in negotiating with insurance companies um, and then may hand the case off to somebody who actually enjoys being in a courtroom, enjoys being in front of a judge and a jury, enjoys the adversarial process. Um, and it's not for everybody. There, you know, it's it can be stressful. Um, it's high stakes sometimes, um, especially for the client, right? Because you're you're playing oftentimes with somebody's ability to pay back the doctor for the medical care that they've gotten over the last two years. And so if you screw something up, or if a jury doesn't believe your version of the story, then you can cost that person hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's not for everybody, but I, I really, really enjoy talking to jurors. I really enjoy arguing um, with smart defense lawyers. It's difficult to argue with people that are um, that maybe don't, that aren't very good, because you never know what that guy's going to say. Like, that guy's dangerous. But the really smart lawyers are fun to argue against, and I enjoy cross-examining liars. That's the best part of my job, Jerome, is when I have somebody on the stand who tells a lie that I have proof in my trial binder is a lie. That's my, my favorite moment in the courtroom. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. You got to give me one of those stories. Well, I'll give you one from, from the case that I just tried two weeks ago. So, two weeks ago, I represented a 28-year-old woman who was catastrophically injured uh, when a drunk driver jumped over a median and smashed into the front of her car. She spent 30 days in the hospital initially. She had a, a colon resection surgery. 
She had 11 surgeries ultimately, but the major one, she had a colon resection and then wore an ostomy bag for 18 months. Um, she's left now with a 22 by 22 centimeter hernia in the middle of her belly. So if you picture just a big hole where your abdomen is, or where your abs are kind of ripped apart, horrific, horrific injuries. And we tried the case because the criminal justice system had failed this young woman. Three and a half years after her crash, when her case actually went to trial, the defendant still had not been to trial in his DUI charge, um, still had not been held accountable for anything. And so what I said to the jury in opening statement was, we're here for two things. We're here to have my client, Jillian, tell her story to you. And we're here to hold him accountable because for three and a half years, he said, I wasn't that drunk. And if I was, my drunkenness didn't cause the crash. So to give you some context, his blood alcohol at the time of the crash was a 0.165, twice the legal limit. And he told us in depositions and told the jury at trial, I only had two drinks. Well, what he didn't know and what I don't think his lawyer knew was that we talked to the cop who arrested him who said, in addition to those two drinks, I also found a bottle of whiskey in the driver's door well. And he admitted at the hospital that he, yeah, maybe, maybe I didn't, maybe I did, maybe I didn't drink it that night. Um, and so we sprung that on them at trial because I didn't think that they knew it and they didn't know it. And, you know, they, they maintained this silly, silly defense through trial and, um, and told the jury at one point they were cross-examining the cop about, is it possible that anybody else got in front, got in between you and the driver and put that bottle there? Like, as if there's some magical fireball fairy skipping around Northern Virginia looking for car crashes so that they can plant fireball. Just silly. Um, and so we asked the a jury to hold him accountable to his actions, and, and they did. They gave a verdict of um, $4.24 million, $3.24 in compensatory damages for her um medical costs for her lost earnings and for her pain and suffering and a million dollars for punitive damages designed to punish him and hold him accountable. And we believe that that million dollar result is a record in Virginia for a DUI crash. So I'm very proud of that. Um, but you asked about, you give me an example of somebody who's, who you know was lying and that was a fun yeah. one. So did he show any remorse at any point? None. No remorse at any point during the trial. No, no apology. So the way to defend a case like that is to put him on the stand, have him apologize, have him say he drank too much, and say, ladies and gentlemen, just keep your verdict reasonable. Don't give him anything crazy. It's not what they did. Um, they hired a toxicologist to say, well, no, his blood alcohol really wasn't that high. Um, it, it was inartfully defended is the way that I would put that. But no, at no point did he ever apologize or, or even come close. Wow. So... They had to know that, though, right? Because that's part of the discovery process. They had to know that you knew some of that stuff. No? No. We have to identify the witnesses that we're going to call, but I don't have to tell them what the witnesses are going to say. Their job is to go and talk to the witnesses that we put on the list and find out what they're going to say. So when I talk about in inartfully defended, yeah. I mean, that was a little bit of a layup. <laughs> um... But it comes together, right? So, so doing 
good things and working hard for good people in bad situations is, is what we love doing. So you're in, you're in court a lot, right? Is every day a good day for you in court? Of course not. Of course not. Typically, if we're in court, it's because there's something that we disagree on. Always when we're in court, it's because we're something we disagree on. In my world, I'm usually in court because I have a dispute about who caused the crash, a dispute about whether my client was as injured as badly as they say they were, um, or what the amount of the damages should be. Most cases are going to resolve. And so if we're in court, it's because we couldn't reach a resolution on that. If you're doing it right, then you should be winning 50% of those trials, right? Because that means you've settled right along the median line, the cases that should be settled, and you're trying cases um, on a regular basis, which you want to be doing, and losing some because nobody can win all their cases. Anybody that tells you they're winning all their cases is, is either lying to you or has only tried one and then they stopped. Um, but yeah, no, every day is not a good day. So has there ever been a time where you're like, I don't know if I should be doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had that time too. Yeah. What happened? Well, I tried a case early in my career where I was stumbling over how to get a medical bill into evidence. Um, and in some... I won't go in, go into too far into the, the details, but there's a couple of procedural rules that you have to check off. And some of them are a little bit of a gray area, and we thought that we checked all the boxes, and the defense lawyer, who was much older than me at the time, convinced the judge that we had not checked all the boxes. And his friend, I vividly remember this, he had a friend watching the trial in the back of the courtroom. So I took what's called a non-suit. It's a voluntary dismissal of the trial. We can come back and try it again at some later date. And his friend says, got to be prepared when you're going against him. And yeah, at that point, I, it's like I never want to be in a courtroom again. I could never try a case again and be happy or happier than I was in that moment. And so you came back. I came back. What happened? Well, I didn't come back with that case. Okay. <laughs> that case then settled. But, but you know, you have to get back on the horse. And the important lesson um, for young lawyers and for people who are young in any profession is, like, you've got to make those mistakes. You're, you're going to. That's how you learn. I, don't, I am not good at reading things and learning them. I am good at touching the wire, right? And it's hot, and then I never put my hand back on the wire. Um, that's how I learn and get better at what I'm doing. Learn by doing. I, I think it's important to be able to admit that everything isn't successful all the time. I think a lot of attorneys avoid going into a courtroom because they always say, I don't know what the judge or the jury is going to do. Do you, do you only go when you're certain? No. No, yeah. we, you know... My job is to give the client the best advice that we can give them about what might happen in a courtroom. Usually it's a range of values. So usually it's, hey, if we have a good day, verdict's going to be in between this and this. And if we have a bad day, you need to know the verdict might be half of that, might be less than that, might be less than the offer. What do you want to do, right? My job is to arm a client with all of the information that they need to make an educated decision about how to proceed with the case. And then to proceed with the case. Okay. 
And what should they know, the client, right? Because more than likely, they've never been into the courtroom. And they're going because somebody else hurt them if they're going with you. What what questions should they be asking when they're making that decision? Because some folks just, like, they've been offered more money than they've ever seen in their life. It's a great question. So, and I'll talk about what you just said about offer more money than they've ever seen in their life in a minute. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, you've hired a professional and you're paying good money to give you an opinion on what's likely to happen. And what mistakes that I see clients make are substituting the judgment of their friends, family, and neighbors and the internet for the judgment of a professional who does this day in and day out, right? And saying, well, classic thing that we hear is, well, my friend was in a crash and he wasn't even hurt and he got more than that. Like, well, I don't know anything about your friend's case and you probably don't know either. Um, what I can tell you is based on my years of doing exactly these kinds of cases, what's likely to happen in your case? And so here's what we do. Um, you asked about people that are getting lots and lots of money. So the other part of our job, you know, where I'm an attorney at law, I'm a counselor at law. Wait, there's a difference? Part of my job. Okay. No, there's not. There's not. So your lawyers are called attorneys and counselors at law. Attorney is giving legal advice. Counselor, counseling, right? So I had a client um, earlier, I guess last year, last year, who um, who had a drug addiction problem, had a very, very serious injury, and was coming into more money than she'd ever seen in one place in her life, right? Um, like the kind of... The kind of money that if you're a recovering addict could kill you. And we convinced her to, rather than take that sum of money all at once, put it into an annuity so that every month she would receive a small sum of money. It would pay for her car. It would pay for her housing. And it wouldn't change her life, right? It was not not life-changing money, but it also wouldn't kill her. And so performing that counselor role for the clients that aren't, financially sophisticated and might have something going on, something else going on in their life that, that could be a major problem for them is another important part of what we do. Do you ever tell a client who wants to go to trial, I'm not going? I've, I am getting better about identifying the clients that won't listen to me earlier in the process so that we don't get to the end point and me saying either I'm, I don't want to go or, or I'm not going or me hating the preparation and the trial. So, you know, the, it's a two-way selection process. Clients got to select a lawyer. Lawyers got to select the clients. And we're fortunate enough to be in an area where um, we're highly regarded and we get a lot of lead flow and I get to pick which kind of cases we want to work on and which kind of cases we don't. And we are getting better at identifying the kinds of people that won't listen to us by the end of the case. And for the people out there, they're probably scratching their head. Like, why would he turn money away? Why would he, why would he tell somebody he doesn't want to keep their case or he doesn't want to mm-hmm. represent them or he doesn't want to help them? Can you break down why, from my perspective, you're demonstrating integrity by running your practice in that way? Well, you could call it integrity or you could call it happiness, right? Um, I don't have to work for everybody. I, you can't make me, right? It's not, um, you can't enlist me to your service against my will, right? Um, 
and we're we're in a position in the market where I, I can pick and choose. And so the next case isn't going to make me if it makes me more money, but it diminishes my happiness. I'm not I'm not going to take it. So we're very fortunate to be in that place. Not everybody is in that place. Um, my caution to clients would be find a lawyer who's not in that place, right? Who's not making decisions based on I got to make rent next month. Um, but yeah, I mean, it comes down to at the end of the day, I've I've got to be happy. I'm going to live with a client for 18, 24, 36 months. I, I got to be happy every time they call. Or I, at least I have to not be unhappy to see their name uh, on the caller yeah. ID. Working with people you don't want to work with stinks. So, you know, as we roll into the, kind of the final two questions, I, I want to go out on a high note. And I think a lot of people in high-paying professions don't really enjoy the work that they do. You've just made it very clear that that's not something that you're willing to do in order to make a lot of money. But I want to go a level higher. Tell me about the time where you felt most fulfilled when you were serving one of your clients. Well, most fulfilled. You know, I, I think, Jerome, that I would I would point to the two cases where we talked about earlier. So the the $4.24 million verdict, her family was overjoyed that we had done what the criminal case system could not do. Um, and then setting up my other client with an annuity stream rather than getting her a pool of money that might have killed her um, is, is very fulfilling. What, you know, the other part that's really fulfilling about what we do is I get to work with a lot of young people, people who are right out of college, right out of law school. Um, and we spend a lot of time with our people helping your, your podcast is called Dream Catchers, like helping them identify what's perfect for you. Why would you want to work here? If this isn't the perfect place for you, let me help you find the place that is. Help, because I've identified that for myself. Like I've identified for myself. What I want, what I like doing, I love that I can leave my office most days at 4 o'clock and go coach my kids' soccer teams. Um, and that's the life that I've built out for myself. And I want to help my staff and my clients build that life out for themselves Amazing. also. Amazing. That clarity is so key in order for people to achieve what they desire. And I don't think anybody else can tell a person what they should want. They get to decide that for themselves. And then people serving as a guide to help them get that, I think is the, the ultimate place of arrival. And I think it starts a little bit before that, because you said most people decide that for themselves. I think outside of groups like this, and outside of people that listen to podcasts like yours, most people have never thought about it, right? What do you want out of your life? I don't, I don't know. If you ask somebody to sit down and come up with, you know, a dozen bucket list items, how many people do you think could fill out that list that aren't around people that are talking about these kinds of things and aren't, aren't in a community that supports dreaming big and, and accomplishing big things? I think many people haven't thought about it, and I, I, and I like that you're spreading the word about, uh, about achieving your dreams and, and having dreams in the first place. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you for being a dream catcher. You're not only doing it for yourself by the life you've built, but you're helping other people see that on the other side of a tragedy, there can be triumph and have the resources available to facilitate that. And so that's why I was so excited to be able to spend some time with you today. And so with that final question, Brian, what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this episode? Ooh, because we talked a lot about business, but I don't want to go there. Uh, you know, I I want to go to dreams. 
everybody should have a list and it should be kept in a place where you see it on a regular basis and you should add to it when you see somebody else do something cool that you would like to do also. And you should check things off that list as you accomplish them so that you can look back in five years and say, wow, man, that, that thing that I thought was completely unattainable for me, I have it now. And where, where we've come in, in my family's personal life where you know, we have family harmony now. Like my wife is, is working with me and we don't butt heads. People ask us that. I have no opinion on any of the HR stuff, so we don't butt heads. Um, but carving out, it, it starts with this. It starts with having a really clear vision three, five, seven, ten years from now of what you want your life to look like, keeping that vision in a place where you see it and driving towards that. So rather than come back and say, what you know, I really want people to hire a specialist and not a generalist, what I really want is, is for people to spend some time in thought about what they really want and then devising a way to get it. Beautifully put together, sir. Guys, ladies, you heard it from Brian himself. Put it together, dare to dream, and then actually make sure you catch that dream. It's not about perpetual chasing. It's about accomplishment and achievement. Your dreams should be real. Until the next episode, we'll talk soon. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.